very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world, and I want to welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Tonight's special guest vowed as a teenager to follow in the footsteps of two 19th century explorers, John L. Stevens and Frederick Catherwood, who brought the ancient Maya cities to the world's attention. Dr. Clark set, on, set out on a seven-year adventure from 2003 through, through 2010 through Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico, collecting stories of encounters, sky gods, giants, little people, and aliens among the indigenous people. She drove more than 12,000 miles, visiting 89 archaeological sites. Stevens and Catherwood visited only 44, and conducting nearly 100 individual interviews. The result is an enthralling series of unique, original, true stories of encounters with space travelers, giants, little people, and UFOs. Sky people may very well change the way you perceive and experience the world. Her name is Dr. Artie Sixkiller-Clark, a professor emeritus at Montana State University, who has dedicated her life and career to working with indigenous populations. She has been adopted by enrolled tribal members and given traditional names by three Northern Plains spiritual leaders, including the Blackfeet, women with great knowledge, the Northern Cheyenne, walks all women, and the Lakota Sioux, women who help who helps people. She holds degrees in English, history, psychology, and educational leadership. She's also a licensed therapist and has been a high school English teacher, a counselor, a school administrator, a university professor, and administrator. The author of several children's books and the best-selling Sisters in the Blood and Encounters with Star People, untold stories of American Indians. Her second book, In the Field of Ufology, Sky People, untold stories of alien encounters in Mesoamerica was released in December 2014. While retired from academia, she continues to travel and interview individuals throughout the indigenous world about their encounters with UFOs and aliens. And to learn more about Professor Artie Sixkiller-Clark, visit her website at sixkiller.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from the beautiful state of Montana, USA, I would like to welcome Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark. Hello, Dr. Clark, and welcome to Veritas. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine, and I had to read all that bio 
so that we can give the audience a great perspective of who you are. But you have written two books about the star people. How did you first learn about the star or the sky people? Well, I learned about it when I was a child. Uh, um, stories told to me um, uh, about the star people. And um, like all children, you know, you you grow up and you go to college and you um, you start your career and you put those stories behind you because they were the stories of your childhood. Um, but... Um, when I was, uh, when I first came to Montana State as a young assistant professor, um, I, uh, one of, I, I was a assistant professor, but I was also the uh, director of the Center for Bilingual Multicultural Education. And the center was, um, um, a rec- uh, among other things, we, we recruited, uh, Native American students to enter the fields of teaching uh, principalships and superintendents. Because when I came to Montana, there were very few Native people working uh, in reservation schools who were Native American. And so the university had, had a mission, the College of Education uh, had a mission to um, recruit Native students so that they could go back to the reservations and work as teachers and be role models and inspire young people to go on to school and get college degrees. And um, on my first trip out into uh, the to recruit on the reservation, um, uh, I met a young man. He he was the one who organized the uh, uh, my meeting on his reservation with students. And after we had um, finished, we agreed to go out to dinner together. And um, um, on our way back to his village. Uh, he said to me, he said, if you have a few minutes, I'd, I'd like to show you something. And I said, well, sure. And so he took me up in the mountains, up above his village, and he parked the car, and he said, come with me. If we're lucky, they'll, they'll come. And I said, well, who will come? And he said, well, the ancestors, the star people. And I'm sitting there thinking, my goodness, you know, you know, I've heard stories about the star people. Are, are there other tribes that think you know, say, say the same thing. So I became very um, uh, fascinated by the stories that he told me. And and so, and by the way, we did not see any UFOs that night. But as I would travel around, and if I were in um, casual situations, I would ask people, and I also would ask elders, uh, uh, people I worked with in the schools, uh um, uh, different people that I met, you know, are, did your tribe have any stories about star people? And then as they began um, knowing me and talking to me, then I began to ask, well, do you have stories about, contemporary stories about UFO sightings? And that's how I began collecting my stories. And originally I hadn't set out to write a book. I... um I just collected the stories because, for me, it was kind of a validation of where I came from. And um, years later, well, after I had retired at MSU, um, and um, I was uh, called out of retirement, I was asked to come out of retirement, 
and I do a five-year evaluation study of a tribal grant that had been awarded to a tribe. Uh, um, it was a $5 million a year grant, and I was asked to come out and, and do this evaluation. So I went to D.C., and I went through the training process, and I um, um, went down to the reservation, and I met with the, the key people involved in this um, grant implementation. And as I was, uh, we broke for lunch, and some women uh, who were going to be involved in the project and some others came in for lunch that day. And something came up about UFOs, and I began telling them some of the stories that I had collected. This one elderly woman looked at me, and she said, what are you going to do with those stories? And I said, well, um, I actually collected them for my own information. And she said, well, you know, you really need to think seriously about this. Uh, she said, what's going to happen to them after you pass? And I said, well, I'll probably just be thrown away. And she said, you know, this is part of the oral history, and you really should write a book about this. And uh, on my way back home, I thought, now, I'm not going to commit to a five-year evaluation contract and write a book at the same time because there's so many other things I want to do in my retirement. And, you know, and so I said, which one should I do? And I decided to write the book. And so that's how Encounters with Star People came about. And, of course, my interest in, I've been interested you know, and worked with indigenous people during throughout my career and have collected stories throughout uh, the United States and Alaska and in the South Pacific and Australia, New Zealand. And then um, in um, when I was a teenager, I just fell in love with um, a teacher gave me the book Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas, and the Yucatan. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, these are, this is by John L. Stevens and his companion, who is an architect and the um, wonderful illustrator of the Maya cities that they discovered uh, in the jungles of uh, of uh, Mesoamerica. And uh, I was so fascinated by their journey that I I told the teacher, I said, you know, one day I'm going to follow in their footsteps. And she said, well, you know, they did write a second book, and she gave me the incidents of travel in the Yucatan. And that book was about their second journey into Mexico. The first book, they actually went into Mexico, but didn't spend much time because um, Catherwood became very ill um, with malaria and uh, a they Stevens finally resorted to just putting him on a boat and getting him back to New York City. And then they returned in 1941, or excuse me, 1841 for their second trip, and that was the book that resulted in incidents of travel in the Yucatan. So I decided back many, many, many years ago that I was going to follow in their footsteps. And, of course, you know, you read all the stories about, you know, the books that came out with Von Daniken and, and some other researchers that um, all of these great cities uh, were built by ancient astronauts or under the um, supervision of ancient astronauts because 
uh, the, the Maya couldn't have possibly had the technology that was needed to build these cities. And um, while I considered, it, considered their opinions quite ethnocentric, um, I decided that if I were going to make this trip, and because of my interest in UFOs, and um, I decided to combine the trip and along the way search out the ancient stories of sky gods uh, to learn if there were any um, um, contemporary stories of alien encounters and UFO sightings. And so that's how it all began. And that's that's quite a long speech I just gave there. <laughs> that's okay. How do you reconcile? By the way, may I call you Artie? Oh, yes. Yes, certainly. Thank you. How do you reconcile the reality learned in academia with the reality learned from your ancestors? Well, you know, um, a, a lot of people have asked me that, and I, um, I'll tell you something that I was told when I was a little girl. I would go to school and I would learn one thing, and I would at home I learned something else. And uh, I, I recall specifically um, uh, in a home economics class, for example, when I was a freshman in high school, the teacher taught us the food groups and saying, you know, this is what you're supposed to eat. And this is what you should eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner. And so she made us keep an account of all the things that we ate. Well, that wasn't what we ate in my home. And I remember being told, well, you keep what you learn at home at home. And you keep what you learn at school at school. And I learned to play that game, uh, if that's what I suppose. I learned to accommodate, I should say what the teachers expected and what my home expected. So I literally learned to walk in two worlds. I was going to say, it's almost like living in two different worlds. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I did. And that's the reason I think I could bridge academia and and be a teacher even of non-Indian students. And because, you know, um, a lot of the times when I was teaching, I would be working with very, you know, high-risk kids, and they weren't always Native Americans. I mean, there are a lot of high-risk kids that, you know, come from um, um, low-income homes and from ghettos and from different places that uh, confront violence and child abuse and all sorts of um, things. Um, not that all children from that group fall into that category, but many of them do. And um, certainly I came out of poverty, but, you know, I didn't come from that kind of a situation. But... I had a, a lot of empathy for for those uh, you know children who came from those environments. So I often found myself being an advocate and working with all children, and um, so I could relate to that to that situation. Um, and um, and and so you know I learned to walk in in both worlds. I, it it. Uh, and school was a good training ground for that, but also my home because I was reminded, you know, quite frequently that um, this is what we do and this is what they do. How did they know, and now getting into the meat of things now, how did they know that the origins of the indigenous people of the Americas were traced to the Pleiades? Well, um, I had a... 
uh, uh, Maya, and El- uh, Maya Elder tell me that you know that they ha- they at one time owned a star map, and he said we knew our way around the universe. And I said to him, I said, well, what happened to it? He said, destroyed, burned. Uh, who, you know, I mean, you know, if you if you study um, that part of the history of of Mexico, for example, you know, there was a um, um, a missionary by the name of Landa, and Landa was a was a bishop who who literally was responsible for, you know, he carried out an inquisition in Mexico and, and literally was responsible for the the deaths of many of the spiritual leaders as well as burning all the the codices um, um, with the exception of the three that survived and all, you know, he destroyed the um, various religious uh, figures and... and uh, uh, different uh, things that were used in prayer, and um, and then was recalled um, uh, back to um, um, his country, and then uh, was um, you know verbally uh, chastised for his behavior in the New World, but then was sent back with the title of bishop, and. Um, uh, the, the people there, you know, a, a terrible fear of him. And, um, and he feeling guilty for what he had done, at least that's what some believe he tried to record a lot of the history and knowledge from talking with various people there. But it's nothing like having the original information and they didn't share with him their spiritual knowledge at all. Yeah, incredible person for being such a religious, you know, Bishop Diego de Landa <laughs> Calderon. Incredible, but he did almost like the burning of Alexandria all the way to the Maya people. Right. And um, the Maya people are very, um, you know, they a lot, a lot of misunderstanding that the Spanish defeated the Maya when, when that was only occurred in a couple of places because for most part, by the time that the Spanish arrived in in um, that part of the world, the great Maya cities had been deserted. There were only a couple of them still functioning at the time that that uh, um, um, this, the Cortez arrived. And uh, when I talked to the people about, you know, they simply had gone into the jungle, and and one elder uh, said to me, he said, "Well, you know." When a great catastrophe um, comes upon a on a people, um, you're no longer consi- uh, con- uh, uh, consumed by the survival of all. You're consumed with the survival of your family, and so basically, what happened to the to the Maya is that they just went into the jungle in small family groups and um, set about surviving. And they abandoned their cities. And I, I know that uh, recently research has come out saying that they think what happened to the Maya civilization uh, and why they abandoned their cities was they suffered a hundred-year drought. And they just had no way of producing food for large cities. You know, some of those cities had 100,000 people living in them. And they had no way of surviving, and so they simply abandoned those cities and and went into the jungle in small family groups and and are still there 
they live in small villages. Most of the people in, in their small villages are related in some way. Um, and they, they are still surviving as they did, you know, thousands of years ago, growing their little corn crops and their peppers and, and a few vegetables and, and they have their, their uh, fruit trees in their yard and their pigs and their chickens and, uh, and turkeys and that's how they survive. I recently went to uh, Chichen Itza and some of the tourists were making comments that I'll laugh about because they were saying, oh, look at the children, they're so poor. Oh, look at the families. But if you look at the children and the families, they all had a smile in their faces. Mm -hmm. They seemed to be very content with what they had. This, this Is this one of the reasons why, let me just take it at a, a different level here. We, when we talk about interviews with people who have experienced encounters in the United States, for example. They talk about the times from Roswell until now, but we never hear from 100, 200 years ago, as opposed to the indigenous people. Is it because most of the people in the United States are immigrants who left their great-grandparents behind who may have had some stories, but the influence of religion may have censored them from talking? And this is why when you interviewed all these indigenous people around the world, the information flows so well? Well, I think that has a lot to do with it because, you know, you still, you know, among native families, um, I recall one time visiting a reservation in the U.S. where the tribe had built this wonderful facility and this is just down on the Choctaw Nation in Mississippi, but it was a wonderful retirement facility. But the problem of it was they couldn't fill it because uh, Native people keep their grandparents at home and their elderly at home. And so nobody wanted to go into it. So they literally opened it up to the whole region, and they've eventually filled it. And they had hired the best doctors and everything. And and I toured the facility. It was absolutely beautiful with walkways and fishing ponds and all sorts of things that the elderly might be interested in. But eventually the majority of the people, at least when I was there, were were uh, that they had been able to recruit to come there were not Indian. And I think that you know, in, uh, among the indigenous people, uh, elders are are more respected. Uh, children are expected to listen to their stories and to seek their advice. Whereas in our society, you know, the children move away from home. They're expected to leave home when they're 18. Uh, that seems to be changing a lot today because of the economy. But, kids. but children are expected to leave home and they move thousands of miles away from parents and grandparents who would pass that knowledge along. And I think the, you know, uh, you, you take, uh, the immigrants who came here up until, you know, the, say the 1980s or 90s, people who came to America came here to be Americans. Now it's kind of different because, um, you don't have so many people coming here necessarily to be Americans, but perhaps more or less they are refugees, you know, and they, they build their own communities. But they, 
um, the people who who at one time immigrated to America came here to become Americans and took a great deal of pride in being, uh, uh, you know, Americans. And and they left behind that knowledge of the old world um, uh, to to a major extent. Uh, you know, you find uh, a lot. Uh, some of them, uh, like uh, some of the 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 people, like Italians and uh, Irish, and some of those specific groups, maintain uh, close relations with the old countries. But the majority of the people who came came here for, you know, to get away from the hardships that they had suffered. And and remember this country was was populated by debtors. People were let out of prison, you know, and, and allowed to come here. Uh people who were were in prison because they were poor, because they couldn't pay their bills. And and um you know, it, you and of course, a lot of them were adventurers who came here uh, in the early days, at least, before the the colonists and uh, the colonists came for religious purposes. But the latter group came in here because they were, you know, they were debtors, and and uh, um, so there there's a, a different reasons why people came here, and and they and I think that with native people, they didn't come here. Uh, to change identity or to become Americans because they were. Well, they they, and they, it, they should have enforced their immigration laws, so maybe they, <laughs> they wouldn't be where they are. kind of a joke I around know. Indian country, right? I know, but this is why I'm, what I'm saying, that the, the Native Americans, just like Asian people, they when they have their elderly, they are taken care of. There's no, the, yeah. the, the fracturing and the fragmentation of the tribe is still intact there. But with the immigration... You know, right now you have a lot of the boomerang kids, as you say, because of the economy, they're going back to, to their homes. But m- traditionally, people leave their countries behind, and a lot of that tradition is lost. So they don't have the anecdotes that a lot of these Native American Native Indian uh, American Indians have and people from Mesoamerica, South America have that is transmitted to them by oral tradition for maybe thousands of years but the question is if and, and you know you hear that you know the kids will say oh the are just old fashioned right you know where you don't hear that um so much in in indigenous communities because there's that respect for the past and the respect for the knowledge of the elders and and um in communities um I saw a tremendous change after satellite TV uh, came uh, onto the reservations. When I first came to Montana, uh, the majority of the households didn't have TV on the reservations because there was no satellite uh, TV or no, uh, and cable, of course, is still not there. But satellite TV is a big thing now on reservations. But you know, children weren't exposed to that kind of media. Well, you go to to Mesoamerica, and they're still not exposed um, to that kind of media. Um, you'll you'll see um, um, satellite TV in hotels, and I was in one village where uh, some some very astute uh, characters had learned how to tap into a satellite TV that the school had. There was a school in the community, and it was a bilingual school, and so they decided they could somehow connect in and feed 
this satellite into the into their household, and so people would come by and and watch TV. Now they have a few channels, obviously, that they can pick up, but they don't have the exposure that our children have, and so there isn't that that um, disdain for the old ways and for the past. And of course, they're still living in the old ways. I mean, they're still living as their ancestors did for most part, unless you get into the cities. Um, you know, they still have the, the earth floors in their houses. Their houses are either made out of sticks, which, and, uh, with palapa roofs, uh, they, um, uh, now you see more cinder block because it's more protective against the hurricanes. But but, but um, I think this is this is totally different way of life. And as you say, the children are happy, and I think our children were happier when they didn't know all these things were available out there that you see on TV and in. Uh, corporate advertising. But it seems like an inverted world because I think the media propagates that this a lot. For example, you see children these days, they cannot tolerate watching old programs. Try to make them watch the Flintstones or, you know, programs from the 50s or 60s. They get bored. And in my times, I used to watch old shows and I would enjoy. I would like to sit in front of archaeologists. I remember this English teacher I had. She was married to a, a very old archaeologist, and I was six or seven, and I was fascinated by his stories, but all my peers would just bolt. Two minutes after he started opening his mouth and bringing all the artifacts, they would not be interested. I don't know why there's this culture of not caring about the old ways. I think this is why the... Progress uh, uh, Yes. You know, everything is progress. You know, the new gadgets, um, and where, you know, I grew up and, and, uh, we were poor, but I didn't know we were poor, uh, until I went to school. And I never asked for all these things because I didn't know they existed. But as far as, you know, I was, I was a happy child because I didn't, because I didn't know any better. I don't know. But, you know, at least it taught me as I grew older and became an adult that I didn't need to have all those things. I know my friends all laugh at me because I don't have a smartphone. I said, what do in the world would I need with a smartphone? <laughs> all I need is a phone that I can call out on. I don't care if somebody calls me on that phone. Because if I go shopping, I don't want my phone ringing. <laughs> and I don't need to have a phone to call home when I'm in the grocery store to ask my husband what he wants for dinner. You know, I, I, you know, those are the kinds of things that just amaze me that you walk through a grocery store and everybody is, is on a cell phone. You, uh, sit at a, you know, I was with a group of teenagers the other day and they were all texting each other instead of talking to each yeah, other. Right. And I thought, this <laughs> is just absolutely crazy. You're sitting next to somebody and you're texting them. But the world has changed and, and there's something to be said about, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the town of Piste. I have a, uh, organizing a library down there, which it's, an, it's, it's the town close. You went through that town if you went to Chichen, uh, it's a, um, and, and, uh, um, I have a godson that lives in that little town, and um, I'm—I just—I uh, love that 
community. Yes, the people are poor, but you know they're wonderful people, and they're they're very rich. They are. They are now. In a it, lot of ways, we aren't. If the ancestors were the start people and came all the way from the Pleiades, what happened to the technology that put them here? Well, you know, I, as I say, the, the elder who talked to me about, um, uh, he said that when a catastrophe happens, uh, and, and he used, he, he said, think of it this way. If something happened to America, and 3,000 years an archaeologist came here, and he would say, what happened to this great civilization? And he would go to New York City, and he would see your Statue of Liberty, and he would dig her up, and he would probably call her the goddess of flame. And he said, who knows where that technology went? Part of it was destroyed. But when a catastrophe happens, people are bent on survival. And they aren't concerned about the technology that built that city. They're concerned about how am I going to feed my children? How am I going to survive until the crops come in? What am I going to do to survive? And I think that's exactly what happened to it. Now, there, I met elders who say they still communicate, um, you know, with with the star people oh. um, in their ceremonies. Now, was the fact that you are an American Indian important for having access to the indigenous people you interviewed? I, I absolutely think it contributed significantly, and and. Uh, be, you know, they always would, would would point out to everyone that I was indigenous. They, um, and I, I think, uh, you know, the fact that I was not only that, I had achieved, uh, uh, I was, um, I had a, a doctorate. You were doctora? You, you know that. You were doctora and indigena. Yeah, right. And that really made a difference for them. Uh, but then I cannot under play the importance of the people who worked with me, my drivers, my guides, my interpreters, because they provided me access to village people that I would never have had if it hadn't been for them. I mean, they took me into the communities. They introduced me. They told people why I was there. And what was interesting to me, you know, some of the people I met knew of Stevens and Catherwood. One gentleman who um, I met out, you know, I had gone in search of this particular uh, city that that uh, Stevens and Catherwood had visited, and um, the the place was was not had not been restored at all. But I found him, and my driver and I, we found him, and he was telling um, this this man. He said he was the caretaker because one of the biggest crimes in Mexico is the stealing of, of the ancient artifacts. It's the second largest crime behind drug uh, dealing, I guess, in Mexico is stealing of artifacts and selling them. And so he was telling him what I was doing, and he insisted that this was not the only site that he looked after, and he took us through the jungle to another site. And then he invited me to his house, and and I met his family, and he said that he had some important documents to show me. 
And here he had some records that dated back to Stevens and Catherwood and some drawings and different things that, that according to him, had been made by Stevens and Catherwood, but they had been given to him by Stevens and left in his care until Stevens returned, and then Stevens never returned, so he kept them. And he showed them, he said, only to important people. So it was really an interesting, you know, I mean, those kinds of things that you, you could never expect to have to happen to you, but they were ju- they just occurred. Um, and a lot of, of uh, um, introductions and, you know, a, a lot of times I would spend in villages, you know, more than, um, you know, I just didn't go in as a tourist. I went in and stayed in the villages and and uh, uh, ate the food the people ate and celebrated with them and went to funerals and attended uh, births and and celebrations and uh, birthdays and saint days and and so people you know got very familiar with me and and uh, um, accepted me and of course I didn't go in and you know. Uh, um, I, you know, I tried to to dress as the people dressed, and and uh, not in shorts and and white uh, tennis shoes. No, <laughs> you know, I even I even had the uh, the sizzle sandals that that one of the elders made for me, and and so it was, it, you know, it was a a different kind of of um, research. You know, we say in in um, uh, um, sociological research, which I don't claim to be an orthodox science scientific researcher because when I, you know, go into, um, a, a community, I'm more interested in, um, social issues and psychological issues. And there's a two perspectives when you do qualitative research. Uh, there's qualitative and quantitative. Well, as quantitative implies, it has to do with the scientific research of numbers and proof and, and you know, all of these kind of things. Where I do qualitative research, and in qualitative research, there are actually two perspectives. One is etic and one is emic. Well, ed- the etic perspective is an outsider's perspective. They are the scientists who who stay on the outside and they view what's going on and they write about it from their perspective so that a a, a good example would be um if you if you read any of the early early journals of uh observers of native american cultures um and, and of course, these were not men who were scientifically trained. They're just observing the societies. And one of the things that was often observed um, was that women were beasts of burden in Indian societies. They had no knowledge of understanding that in, in many of the Indian societies, labor was equally divided. And therefore... The women ha- the women's role was the home. So the women took care of, say, out here in the northern plains, the teepee. 
the teepee was her domain. So she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of the buffalo, she tanned the hides. That was her job, anything to do with the home. And they would refer to the Indian male as being extremely lazy. Well, the Indian male's responsibility was the hunting and providing the food and the spiritual leadership for the community. Parents have also been accused by by observers as being uh, a, a no discipline of their children. Well, that's because in many of the Northern Plains tribes, their discipline responsibility actually fell to the uncles and aunties of of the children because the parents wanted the children to feel um, um, loved um, unconditionally. And so they didn't discipline them. They expected the aunties and the uncles to tell them the proper way of behavior. Interesting. And to discipline them if that was required. So an outside observer looks at this and says, oh, the Indian men are lazy. They don't care about parenting. The the wife does all the work. And that was a common kind of description in Indian communities. You look at some of the tribes like, for example, the, the Cherokee. They called the Cherokee government the petticoat government because the women could sit in council the women could make decisions about war, and and they didn't look at the fact that uh, um, uh, in the uh, in the Cher- the what the Cherokees had decided was appropriate form of government that women should have as many rights as men, because they came from a culture where women stood behind the man and didn't speak. Because that's the way it was in England or in Europe at that period of history. So they couldn't fathom a society where women could have equal rights. So, you know, if you, if you look at researchers who are standing on the outside and looking at a native culture and saying it's impossible that those ignorant Maya could ever possibly build those great cities. It had to be some ancient astronaut coming down and making that you know, enslaving the Maya, and they built the city. I had the same. Whereas, I had the same conversation with a member of the Dogon tribe, and they get upset when people tell them, "Oh, it's impossible that humans could have made the pyramids." And they say, "Why is that? Why, why can't we be capable of doing that? Why do we always have to give the credit to an exterior force that doesn't belong to us?" And that's ethnocentric, because if you had to admit that indigenous people were capable of building such great cities, then it may not be that that the non-native who came along, the non-indigenous, who Christianized and captured or destroyed those we're not a superior race. All of the above. And that's exactly where, Yeah. But see, when I go into a community, I'm, there's the etic and the emic, and I try to use the emic perspective. And the emic perspective is an insider's point of view. And that allows for a very different perspective. And an emic researcher avoids judgment about the observations. You know, I look at the way people do things and I, I accept that as the way that it is supposed to be. And so whenever people talk to me about seeing UFOs or their encounters with aliens, I don't question their honesty. 
whether they're not they're telling me the story if they have proof. Because if they have proof, they'll show me. And I don't look at it from a perspective of an orthodox scientist. I simply allow them to tell me the story. And if I have any questions, it is not questions intended to lead them in a certain direction. It's questions related to the story they're telling me. So I think that's why, you know, my books are so different and why my stories are so different because people are willing in that kind of an environment to open up and tell tell the truth of what happened. Stories that many of them have kept hidden for years because they just don't want to face um, um, telling people from the outside their stories for fear of uh, ridicule or... or uh, um, being maligned and, uh, and where I don't use that approach. I simply embed myself in villages and, 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 uh, um, gain the confidence and the trust, uh, of people and, and then listen to their stories. I think that's the most sensible approach. When I lived in Asia, I used to say, treat people the way they, the way you want to be treated. That's etic. And they taught me something different. They said, no, here, we treat others the way they want to be treated. That's entic. You have to learn from the culture in order to feel what they feel. But while traveling throughout the United States and Mesoamerica, do you find people in Mesoamerica more open to talk about this object than, say, in the USA? And if so, why do you think that is? I didn't find that. I, You know, I, I think, uh, and it could be because of, of uh, the language barrier, but, you know, being being... Native, you know, and going into uh, Indian communities, I have to admit that there, you know, there was reticence on the part of a lot of people, but other people were, you know, I mean, I think it's equally you have to gain the, the, the trust of the people before they will tell you the stories. I mean, I knew some, some of the people as long as 20 years before they ever told me a story. And they said, well, I'm just checking you out. You know, make sure. <laughs> well, the- and and so you know, and I accept that. I you know, so I don't. Uh, I, but I, you know, I, so there really wasn't that much of a difference. Well, the reason why I ask you, Artie, is because in the United States, I my perception is that when you ask uh, a, a a native about this, an American Indian, they seem to be more reserved because of the fear of ridicule that we have rampant in the United States. But when you go to Mexico, and I lived there for a few years, you ask people about this. It's something very normal. It's like, yes, you can ask me anything you want. And there's no fear of ridicule for some reason, a difference in culture. But before we begin with the interviews you have conducted, did you notice a difference in the stories between the American Indians from those in other countries, or did they share common traits? There were common traits. I mean, the 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 uh First of all, the aliens they saw were, uh, you know, fell into basically three categories. Uh, the shapes of the, of the aircraft, or not aircraft, but the crafts. Um, the, um, um, I, one of the things I found in, in Mesoamerica, particularly, um, in Mexico, was the influence of religion on, um, um, uh, superstition played a role throughout Mesoamerica that I didn't encounter in in um, in the U.S. Um, uh, you would have uh, things attributed to witches and or you know uh, curses and um, different kinds of things that I found in Mesoamerica. Um, uh, 
preachers, not not Catholic priests, but preachers of the more fundamentalist churches, um, uh, telling um, um, their congregations that UFOs were from the devil, like Pentecostal, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalist kind of uh, uh, the Pentecostal preachers, evangelical preachers. Uh, so you know, I ran onto some of that that I didn't run on to in the U.S. Um, but um, as a rule, um, I think um, some of the the descriptions were a little more sophisticated in the U.S. because um, uh, people are more familiar, I think, in the U.S. with some of the... Um, um, I think you'd have to live under a rock not to have heard the word UFO. Um, uh, so, yeah, you know, it, but, but it was, it, it was very, uh, a lot of it, uh, like when I was in Belize, I heard a, an ancient story of the stone woman, I believe. And, uh, I was very fascinated with the story because as the story goes, it was a, uh, Back in the 1800s, a young man was going hunting, and he his village was located near an ancient site, and he went through this ancient site on his way to hunting. And as he approached the site, he saw this woman dressed in a long white dress with long black hair and red eyes, and she was the most magnificent woman he had ever seen. And he dropped his gun, went back into um, the village, and and asked, I told them what he had seen, this woman that was standing there. At, at this particular uh, temple, there is a, there's a cave underneath it, and he said she was standing there at the entrance to the cave, but she was like a stone woman. She never moved. And so he goes back, he drops his weapon. I said gun, I mean his weapon. And he goes back into the village and he tells them what he's seen. So the whole village goes with him in search of this woman. And of course, by this time, she's gone. And the story is that she would periodically appear. And some people said that she came down from the sky on a beam of light. And other people say they don't know where she came from, but they saw her walk the temple and she would disappear inside the temple and they would never see her again. So I was interested in this story, and I'd heard that there had been a UFO sighting in that area. So I went in search of the priest from that village, and um, uh, the um, uh, his wife told me that that she w- he was at at the ancient site. And so you know you have to take one of these hand crank. Uh, uh, you pull yourself across the river. It's a kind of a hand crank thing to get across yeah. the river. And um, when I got there, we found him, and and he said, "Oh yes," he said. Uh, he said that the UFO has uh, these sightings of the UFO have been going on for several days. He said, and he said the village people are very concerned about it, and they said they they spend a lot of time in prayer um, because they're concerned about it. But he said. I said, well, has the stone woman appeared? And he said, oh, yes, we have seen her more than once. And I, he said, but I know she's, she comes from the stars. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, um, 
she has very uh, great powers, she said. Um, and, but her powers are in her eyes. So I don't look at her eyes. Other people, other people are so mesmerized by her eyes. But when you look into her eyes, she can make you believe anything or do anything that she wants you to do. So she makes them think she walks through, through walls and she makes them think she can disappear. But I saw her go on a beam of light to a UFO, he said. Because I don't look into her eyes. I shield myself from her eyes. So I thought it was a really an interesting, um, idea because there's a, there's a theme there of, of, I've heard of other UFO encounters where people have said that, that alien beings could make them do whatever they wanted them to do. Or make them think whatever they wanted them to think. So therefore, um, uh, you, uh, don't necessarily recall a situation as, as, as it occurred. And, uh, um, I, I, uh, uh, interviewed a priest who told me about his entire village experiencing a UFO, um, landing when he was a boy outside, uh, on the outskirts of his village in the schoolyard. And that, um, he he communicated with a star man who told him that he would not remember this visit. And he said that he told the star man that I will remember this visit. And he said that he looked down at his feet and there was a stone between his feet. And he picked that stone up and he put it in his pocket. And when he got back home, he put it by his sandals before he crawled into his hammock. And he said he told himself, if I get up tomorrow and that stone is there, I will know what I saw is true. If it's not there, I will know I was dreaming. And he said, when I got up the next day, the stone was there. I know what I'm telling you is the truth. And he said, in fact, the kindness of the star man is probably what made me be a priest because I felt nothing but love from him. And I wanted to always maintain that love and to give it to other people. Now, you have another story. Well, we have so many great stories. But let's start also with the backward walking people in Belize. Yes, I, you know, um, I had a really uh, unorthodox driver in uh, in Belize who seemed to know everybody in the whole country and uh took me on on some really wild trips and uh, the first night I was there I asked him I, I arrived there in the early afternoon and I asked him I said you know I'd like to see the city at night and he said oh no problem so he picks me up at the hotel but we end up um there's a sighting of a UFO over Belmont uh, Mopan, which is the capital, there is a, uh, he takes me to the hospital to see a friend who just had surgery. I ended up at an uninvited, at a wedding reception of his cousin. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm just going to all these different places, never did really get a tour of the city, although I saw a lot of the city that night. Uh, but I didn't see the, the, you know, the p- particular, 
uh, places of historical reference. Um, but he, uh, uh, just entered, I mean, I just was like family, you know, you just go along with me and, and whoever's with me is family. And, um, I was with the women downstairs in this reception hall where the, where the wedding reception was, was being held and, and everybody was leaving and saying goodbye and, and, um, the, these young cousins were there cleaning up and, and, uh, and uh, somebody said something about the sighting of the UFO that night. And, um, and this one young woman said, you know, they were probably the backward walking people. And so I asked them, I asked her, you know, what are you talking about? And so she told me about when she was a girl growing up, you know, she would spend a lot of time with her grandfather who had a, who had a small plantation outside of, uh, Belize City and, and that these um, uh, creatures from uh, they had a spacecraft and they would come down and land on her grandfather's property and and she described them as she said that she couldn't see them very close so she couldn't but her grandfather said their skin was scaly and she said that they had the ability to for, to turn their heads around and look in all directions. She said, uh, unlike us, we our head is stationary and we only look forward. They could pivot their head around 360 degrees and, and that in doing so, they could walk backwards. So she called them the backward walking people. And she said she observed them on, on various occasions while at her grandfather's place and they always came in a spacecraft. And it's interesting that with all these stories, you report so many different things, but all you have to do is look it up at the stars. We have billions of stars and maybe trillions of planets, so it's not unlikely to see so many different species. But now we have another story, the double in another planet. I found interesting that, and you'll tell us about the story, but I found interesting that according to the witness, quote, he says, quote, These spacemen did not consider the feelings of the humans they chose for their study. It does not seem to matter to them that they were interrupting lives. They underestimated or did not understand the independent nature of the human spirit. They don't understand when we rebel or are uncooperative. They expect obedience, unquote. Why is it so difficult to understand? Obviously, the mere fact they made it all the way here puts us in a more it puts them in a more advanced technological level. If say cattle could talk, wouldn't they be saying the same thing about us and our treatment towards them? Well, I think they would, you know, but the the fact of the matter is it it would appear from what this witness was saying is they didn't seem to understand resistance. Perhaps they're from a world where there is no resistance to whatever the leaders say. That's what the, that's what they do. Uh, you know, um, that, that people follow along without resistance or, or their subjects follow along. And, um, but, but at the same time, uh, this person, um, was being cloned. Uh, and, and, but he, he did develop some sort of respect for them. He said that, that if it hadn't been for them, he probably would have never gone to college, which I found really interesting because he said, you know, he, he wanted to, it was 
knowing that he was not alone in the universe made him want to be able to to be more educated and to contribute more to this planet, knowing that there were others out there, that life did not just exist on Earth. I thought that was interesting. And there's a story of Raul Manuel that I told my wife this morning while I was reading the book. And my wife is not into any of this at all, but she was so impressed with this story. An elder who lived in a Belizean village who told the story repeated of repeated this is to a place in the sky where people from Earth worked alongside sky people and other aliens from throughout the galaxy. Tell us about his abduction two days before his ninth birthday and what came after. Well, you know, he he was very concerned about that abduction, he told me, because, you know, birthdays are really celebrated. And uh, uh, he he was afraid he was going to miss his party because the village, literally, when a child's birthday comes along, everybody turns out for this birthday. And um, so he knew it would be a big celebration. I mean, everybody is fed, and there's a dinner, and there's dancing, and there's music, and there's presents. And and so uh, he said that that he he was taken. Uh, and, and, but he was returned in, in time for, for his birthday party, but that the, um, um, the, uh, um, uh, abductions didn't stop. Uh, they continued, um, to, uh, take him. And one of the things, um, he was, um, he he from the time he was a little boy he was very interested in plants and trees and things and he talked about how he would go around the village and he would he would dig up fruit trees and different kinds of trees and he would uh he would plant them uh in people's yards and in the village and and um how he um um uh when he uh as he grew older he would help the the aliens select plants from the from the jungle and they would take them with them and he they had like a a nursery of some sort and they would uh he would be responsible for planning along with other children on this city in the sky you know that he called it um and and uh and he continued to do that here he was an elder and he was still disappearing like that and his children worried so much about him because they wanted him to come live with them but he he was happy where he was because he he uh he enjoyed you know his interaction and he said that now that he was older that he was actually highly respected um and um uh, among the children there um uh and the, and the people he was regarded as as an elder with with a lot of knowledge why was he chosen all the way before he was 9 years old what was so special about perhaps him perhaps because of his interest in botany mm. don't you think because he was he was uh um i mean it's a wonderful story isn't it and of course he had that little boy in training who was with him and and uh who he hoped that would take his place once that he was gone and he did actually it's quite right quite an amazing story oh yeah Pardon? and it, 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 yes yes that, that that that's exactly what happened the the boy 
took his place. I mean, people would try to find Raúl Manuel, the elder yeah, man, but he was, and he was yeah. gone. Now he went to some planets, I believe, where people lived underground. Yeah. Can you describe? He, he, yeah, they lived underground, and and uh, uh, he he described their um, their life as being so so different than you know the roles of the people and and uh the roles of men and women and and so it's very interesting uh story that he um people are going to have to read the book oh, in order absolutely. to really get all the details absolutely of the story. we're just t- scratching the surface here but just a point a couple I, a couple of things about this story that is so fascinating when he went to this planet that was kind of a purplish grayish it was completely bare on the surface and people uh-huh. lived underground and he asked him you know why do you live underground and apparently Something a catastrophe had happened, and the everybody was living underground, working towards one day maybe coming back to the surface and working towards that goal. But they were very content with what they had. And he also asked him, you know, how do you transact? Uh, how you know do you use paper money? And they said, no, we use gold. And you know, he said, oh, really? You use gold too? And it seems to right. be a universal, a universal exchange of value across the universe, isn't it? Yes, and not only that, they gave him some gold. Oh, hold on. Don't, 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 don't tell that yet because I want to go in okay. a, <laughs> a chronological order because what happened, he was very elderly and your driver buddy told you that, you know, once he starts dosing off, that's a signal that you need to stop because he's he's too old. And then he realized that he was falling asleep and he told you, please promise me, doctora, that you will come back. I, will have, I have so much more to share. So you left and when you returned, was it a year after? Yes. A year after he had he had passed away a month or two before on his sleep. But the wife, I think his wife, was cleaning the house and she found a box. Tell us what she found. Well, it was it was uh, the little boy's mother, and and she found uh, she found the gold. And the, they were bars of gold, and I, I asked her, I said, well, did they have any markings on them or anything? And she said, oh, yes. But she, she said, was that important? <laughs> and I said, probably. And she said, well, she had had uh, deposited them and had, uh, you know, set up an account uh, um, for her son to go to school. And that she had sent him away to a boarding school to live out their dreams um, of the elder and uh, that he would become educated and carry out uh, his work. And, uh, and of course, as, as you know, the school had was having trouble keeping him there. Because he would disappear and probably... He would disappear just like the old man so he, was disappeared. Obviously, he, he took over the place of the old man. But the interesting right. fact was of the stories that the box filled with bars of gold was found by, and with a note that stated that he was given the gold by the Sky people right. in lieu for in payment for his knowledge. And this is it's just an incredible story. I mean, how can you make this up? Well, it's true, you know, and there is no reason to believe that he, you know, why would he make up such a story? Because it, you know, he wasn't expecting me. I mean, oh, he just stopped it on the spur of the moment. And, uh, but it was, it, you know, and, and my driver knew him because uh, the, uh, his father lived in that same village. And 
and or his grandfather lived in that same village, I think it was, and and so the old man was reminding him, you got to go see your grandfather, you know, and um, and so he began to tell me that story when he he found out what I was doing. And again, we were just scratching the surface of these stories. You have to read I, the book for so many stories, but we have to take a one and only break on, on our side, and we have so many more stories to, to discuss when we come back. Very, very fascinating stuff. I always wanted to learn more about what the the indigenous people around the world had to say, and, and this is exactly what you've been able to accomplish. Two books we have so far, Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians, and the latest one, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. How can people buy the books and learn more about your work, Artie? Well, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble carries them. In fact, uh, I've had people to say that they've even seen them on the shelves at Barnes & Noble. But, you know, you can go to their website and, of course, Amazon.com. Uh, a lot of bookstores I, I know are are carrying uh, the book, um, and so and uh, just you know, just the normal outlets. I think any bookstore could order the book for you because my publisher is quite well known. And folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, and as you know, this is I'm not embarrassed to say that this is my favorite topic. I'm tired of, of talking about metal craft flying around us. We all know that. We all know that. We all know that they come here. Now the question is, let's talk about the stories of the people who have had interaction with them. And this is exactly what we're doing tonight. And so much more of this when we return. This is Mel Fambergas, and you are listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now... We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.
waar we staan. We vechten, we helpen, haten, luisteren en gaan. We winnen, we duiken, we dansen, we lachen, ontluiken. Verwonderen, we hopen, we bidden, verlaten, vergaan. We lachen ontluiken.